Hey, everybody. This is the Steg Drew Show, and I'm your host, Drew Stegmeyer. This show is new, evolving, and finding itself. We don't yet know what it will turn out to be, and that's exciting. I believe the world has a current civility deficit, and with this endeavor, I'll be exploring tough and taboo topics with compassion and civility so you can do the same with your friends, family, and coworkers. Jim Carpenter began learning diplomacy as a child. His parents came from two different religions, and his father studied under famous psychologist B.F. Skinner. So Jim, at a young age, began learning about how to bring people together. He spent most of his career working for the Bureau of Labor and Statistics for the United States government. And afterwards, and starting around the early aughts, he began really going into the weeds about civility and bringing people together through a number of organizations like Braver Angels, which was mentioned by prior podcast guest Rob Hardy, through work with various interfaith organizations and groups like supper clubs that bring people together who seem to disagree on topics. Jim spends a ton of time and effort working on listening and bringing people together. And we talk about his history and those various organizations and then also eventually get into a little bit of his theories about how he thinks financial policy and MMT or modern monetary theory can possibly be a means of bringing more harmony and peace to the world. As we dive into this, it's important for me to note that Jim has views, I have views, and there are many other views. And all views are valid, and all views are welcome. And it brings up an idea which I like, which is that we can be right, or we can be in relationship. To add a little nuance to that, when we're interested in being right, that often means making other people wrong. When we're interested primarily in being in relationship, we become more open to other perspectives. So give this a listen. It's one of the longer ones. We do meander a bit, but I think you will enjoy it. Are you tired of your toes getting cramped and your feet hurting from wearing dress shoes all the time? Maybe you're into the barefoot shoe movement and you love the feeling of your barefoot shoes, but you have to wear dress shoes sometimes. If you're in either of these cases, or you're just curious what this whole barefoot shoe thing is like, but you don't want some Vibram Five Finger clown shoes, as I've worn in the past, then you need Carrots, C-A-R-E-T-S dot com. Carrots makes the best looking minimalist dress shoe, and they're founded by Mountain Chang, former podcast guest. Plenty of people have healed health problems from wearing these shoes. They are not a medical device, but what I said is true. If you're wearing a really cramped small toe box with a raised heel, it can hurt your feet. It can cause all sorts of problems with your body. And if you're in those situations where you still need a dress shoe, but you want something that's more comfortable for your foot, it's hard to find options. I've worn dress shoes, excuse me, barefoot shoes for eight years and carrots, again, that's C-A-R-E-T-S dot com is the only ones that I've found who make good-looking dress shoes. Check them out. C-A-R-E-T-S dot com. 
Jim Carpenter, welcome, welcome. Well, good being here. Yeah. So, as we get kicked off, uh, I would say that the two main focuses of the show are, I'll call it de-escalation, for lack of a better term, and its many forms in our world today, and then your involvement with it, including um, your analysis platform for hot topics. But before we really go deep into those, I would say that you started uh, autodidactic de-escalation training uh, growing up with, with your parents, right? This story starts a long time ago. So how about starting off with, with that and the environment you grew up in and the seemingly opposed views? Well, I had a really great family life. Looking back on it, my parents were very attentive. My father taught me science and math from a rather early age. And my mother taught me everything she could about the body. And there's the difference, basically. That's the division. My father was a PhD psychology professor, student of B.S. Skinner, the behaviorist. And uh, and he taught for years at the and my mother is a Jehovah's Witness, like her father, and they're a rather um, self-isolating group. And so they had their own view of the history, according to the Bible, is everything, uh, creationism. But they don't believe in hellfire. A lot of their beliefs, I appreciate that they don't believe in, in the original sin sort of thing, as it's generally thought with hellfire and all that. Also, that I... We had a lot of good things in the group because the congregation in Ann Arbor was, uh, was fully integrated. And uh, so there were a lot of blacks who called each other brother and sister. So that was really pleasant. And we had these huge conventions. Well, and this, this was at a time where most things weren't integrated. Oh, definitely. Right? Yeah. So just for listeners, like at the time, that was maybe considered radical or unusual. Yeah. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Of course, it was in Ann Arbor. So... And there were congregations, so it was congregations, I think, in the South, which had to be integrated because of neighborhood laws or <laughs> restrictions, persecution or whatever. Uh, yeah, but we had these large conventions, you know, for mixed races, set up our own cafeterias that served thousands. We would volunteer as a kid with other people from different races. So it was really good at that aspect. But... The differences between the science and the Bible huge, and uh, I tried for years to be the good apologist for both, trying to figure out. I think that probably looking back, the best I could do was I could see the models that they were using, their thought process, conceptual, how they view the world, mm-hmm. and how different they were. Uh, so that was, that was kind of kind of the early uh, direction I got. Yeah, so much later, I, I became aware of the Quakers. I was kicked out of the Jehovah's Witnesses living with my wife before we were They're pretty uh, strict on those things. So when we moved to uh, the D.C. area in 76, uh, yeah, we, we were invited by some neighbors to move into this old rundown mill mm-hmm. to, to start a meeting group. Quakers, because Paul and worship me. I don't know how you're familiar with our audience with Quaker worship. They're probably not at all. I would, <laughs> I would guess. I, I would. Yeah. Uh, I can't speak for for the listeners, but when I hear the word Quaker, I think of it. Um, <laughs> so 
Well, there is a yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I guess as a brief aside, uh, folks probably wouldn't know, and, and maybe we'll spin the camera, but we are in a Quaker meeting room. We are in the library of a right, yeah. And behind the camera, there's actually a board with history starting in 1661. So, our current space has a lot of history in it, literally in, in the space we're right now. And um, I'm glad yeah. you saw that because I couldn't read that and I didn't know what it was. I thought it was a sweet kind of treasure. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. thank you for uh, Yeah, it's, it's like a visual representation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I need to study that more. Okay. It's been here for a long time, but I just haven't looked mm -hmm. So at the time, you and your wife weren't Quaker. You just got invited. Yeah. And that was also around the time where you just got exiled from the right? Yeah. Okay. So I guess, are, are you a Quaker then? Or yeah, it's, since then? It's uh, two types of Quakers. There's the, uh, there's the, the committed Quaker or whatever, the, the official Quaker rules of the process. And then there's the tender, basically regular attendance. Uh, and so I'm still a, a tender. I haven't made the finals proved by. Yes. Yeah. In the Catholic Church, of that conflict. Yeah. Which. Uh, right. <laughs> Lifelong commitment as a 14 year old brain is obviously not developed. I was really stupid, you know, as a 20 year old, let alone 14, right? Um, okay, so, you know, 1976, moved to DC around the bicentennial, started getting involved in Quaker community. And then, uh, you know, what next? Or how did, how did you get from there to kind of uh, your, your work in basically, again, this kind of stuff? Right. I, I, it was kind of a long process. First, I had to learn how to work on projects with fellow Quakers and the community, you know, so we had a lot of, it was during the energy crisis, so we got involved in lots of different energy projects. Uh, and the common market was uh, started, which, which we now have two commercial common markets in Frederick. It started in the Quaker meet, uh, home, uh, it was just kind of an open, you walk in and fish out some old fashioned common. Uh, so it, I like the community and the, and the energy of working on projects that needed to be done for the environment, for the future, for peace. You know. uh, but uh, I think I, I really got interested in the communication part, figuring out how the community is better through the mankind project. Okay. So basically, up until that, then I thought I was a pretty good guy. You know, I uh, had no problems with people. Uh, but we had a lot of processes in our meetings. I've been in a number of groups that meet regularly. And so I learned a lot of things about myself, you know, how I express feelings and how I communicate and uh, a different process opening up communication. Uh, and at the same time, we were we were putting the papers were putting on in dinners. We all attended that before 2016. And um, in 2016, the political environment kind of changed. Trump was elected, and uh, I think people on both sides were looking for a way to come together. And what better way than opening a potluck dinner? So hold, hold enough. Black church, basically, black church, 200 year old church. 
to kind of celebrate our unity. So we had a huge turnout. We had five, five local attendants, 250 in a, in a basement of, you know, cleaning food, every night. And so it was, the environment was really great until Democratic candidate got out. Things that offended the public. There are some who walked out. And so uh, a fellow Quaker who was kind of the chair of the committee, that really famous in Frederick, called the fence, fended group together with some impartial observers. Mm -hmm. uh, somehow I got elected to kind of lead the meeting and produced a lot of the interview process. So were you one of the offended people? No. Okay. <laughs> okay. So you're an impartial observer who gets brought in. Well, kind of make amends or yeah to, to kind of get together and see if we can kind of uh, learn how to understand each other and talk yeah so. well and so i guess the the folks who got offended were willing to take a meeting so that was good yeah right because they could have said you know screw you right so, right. so they take a meeting and then uh then what well we had we had several meetings and uh i it started out slowly but basically introductions that limited to this personal experience and I was fascinated with that idea of talking, limiting your your political discussion to your own personal experience, uh, without bringing in a lot of the tropes and buzzwords and so forth. That people sometimes find it that it's amazing how a term can upset a whole category of people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we had a number of those meetings, and we found that we were. Kind of big things is progress and communicating and understanding each other. So on the July 4th, we generally have what's called a peace meeting. So I developed this process of uh, communicating on hot topics. So I had a list of 19 issues with them and demonstrated a process. And the only limitation was the only speaker I statements, right? <laughs> right. Uh -huh. And so I demonstrated that, you know, then we split everybody up on opposite sides of the mission. We only had about seven conservatives, libertarian, and the rest of the 40 in Picnic out here to the meeting hotline. And uh, they, of course, they didn't follow the, the demonstration the instructions. <laughs> well, it might take some skill and some practice, right? Yeah, but they all decided they had a good time. <laughs> okay. Right. So that's the key. Okay, you got everyone wants to feel heard. Yeah, right. They got a chance to talk, however messy it was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So they said, "Well, let's do this again." And uh, so, sometime after that, we had that. This was in July twenty. Yeah. Okay. Right. So election is, I guess, January. Right? Or was the election uh, December? <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right here. Yeah, yeah. It's easy. Uh, so. Uh, uh, about that time, you know, you know Paul Fogarty? Yeah. Right. So he, he developed this process called Forum Value Okay. which is, I was really impressed. Really, on any issue, you can actually, there's a process where you can actually get down to revealing what your core value is. Mm -hmm. And once you understand your own, the other person's core value, you can kind of see a path right. uh, for doing something together. So it's more mm -hmm. than common ground, but you say, okay, you want to go ahead and I want to go in this direction. But what can we accomplish together in between? Mm -hmm. um, that, that's sort of an attitude. So I, I became convinced that, that what we really need is better process to fully understand each other. I might not agree with you, right? but I, 
understand your worldview, your core values. Yeah. I mean, if you want to explain to me your theory, you know, economic, political ideas, and stuff, okay, that's part of sort of the model that that's sort of how you look at the world, right? And right. the data, you, the facts you select, and how you connect the dots. So that's kind of the model part of it. And uh, so, so I was going in different directions, but I, I think what, okay, I'll continue kind of on timeline more or less. That we got together a team uh, around the organization called, I think it was called Better Braver Angels, Better Angels. And they developed the workshops at the 16 to teach skills. And so got together a group of Republicans and Democrats, and we put on some of these workshops and we did well. Got people from different states talking to one another, continuing discussion. And uh, we had a number of those in, in the until the virus broke out. Right? Then we couldn't. So about that time, Braver Angels, we had to change the name from Better Better and biased yeah. superiority. Uh -huh. yeah. Well, no, it was copyrighted. Oh, okay. Got it. I was I was assuming it was like, yeah, so if you're not in here, you're a lesser angel. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, so it was a brand, it was, it was pure like trademark brand. Yeah. Okay. So then that gets uh on pause. Did it move or yeah, I they started developing this with Zoom, but it meanwhile we we were in the active and okay practically all all of the and then 
So, uh, so she, she rejoined the group, uh, but it took us a long time to figure out how to conduct ourselves. Right. Well, and I think, um, I mean, I guess a couple of different I view a good argument as a shared exploration of what is true, right? And so maybe associated press like, how can these two people talk? Well, if both of them care about the truth, that's the primary thing they're both trying to get to, um, you know, there could be a lot of roads for the same summit, right? And so just being able to hang for a month and not get each other <laughs> and still be committed to trying to understand is huge. Right, a lot of people would be like, "This is hard. We're dumb." <laughs> right, and and you know, I think there's something I guess unique and special about being willing to let it be messy and let that mess persist for however long, while being like, "Hey, I really want to understand you, but I don't. I really want to understand you, but I don't." And I think most people. They take one or two doses of that, and then they're out, right? Let alone coming back, coming back, coming back, or, or just having the humility to say, I don't get it, over and over and over. <laughs> right. well, I'll agree with most everything you said, uh, except for the, the goal. Okay. The goal, to me, is, is not seek the truth. Okay. Uh, and that's a trap, thinking that there's only one truth. Uh, there may be. Right, you know, right. I mean, things well, there, there can be a multiplicity. Well, I, I would look at it as, a, as stories, narratives of how we view the world. Mm -hmm. you know, that's so, what I really want to know about someone else is how they look at the world and how they're, you know, put things together so they make sense. Yes. That's what I want. I call that understanding. Okay. And uh, it's not that it's that we're, we're both have to be truth, but we're also going to have to understanding each other's world. Mm -hmm. And fundamentally, in in bottom line is the core value. Mm -hmm. Understand your core value too. Uh, I I that's one thing I like about Paul Fogarty's uh, core value negotiation. Basically, understand each other at that deep level. Um, different ways to go up there. Uh, I what what I've what I've done now is is basically done this kind of a survey of a lot of the different organizations besides Brave Ranger. Brave Ranger is just really good with what they do. They have good workshops, even within special design workshops for your your identity. Republicans have their own workshop to talk among themselves. Yeah, yeah. And then pass in. Uh, but also, they, they have some good dates. I really like this. Those are really great. It's a good, I, I call it the Quaker style. What's uh, uh Well, basically, you have a, uh, a moderator, we call it, and everybody addresses their, their question. To, oh, rather than to others. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you have them ask that you have to observe the protocol, the civility. But what are what are some of the protocols? Because I'm not gonna suspect this is the uh, one of the things I wanted to get into for people who maybe aren't as as into this world or who don't go to the nonfiction workshop for the braver angels. Like, what are some maybe quick and easy um, 
skills, right? Or like when, when there's things they have to do to talk to each other, like what are maybe some of those things like that you could say in like a, a short answer? Uh, <laughs> well, the, the, the basic skills workshop is great range, so it, it breaks it down for tool sets. They have the initiation, how, how you determine whether or not you need to engage your goals. And then there's the, the, the listening tool. When, how do you listen clearly and communicate? And then there's the speaking, what language skills need to be understood. Then there's kind of the, the wrapping up of how you get out of this mess. Okay. Skill okay. set. Right, right. So they have all four tool sets covered. Okay. And I probably it would be do a great disservice to try to go into the, all the mm -hmm. skills, even though I'll just give a plug for your angels, take a workshop. Okay. <laughs> uh, but I, in, in the process, I, I came across the, this website called Bridge Alliance. Okay. And it, it's an alliance of about 100 organizations in the United States that are working on different aspects to build a civil community. And so I'm really amazed about that. We, a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, in the streets of the Asbury uh, block. It's the Asbury Church, like one of the old Frederick. And uh, I thought I volunteered to do a table called the Table of Understanding, you know, where I okay. have all this display about different approaches and highlighting these different organizations mm -hmm. that fundamentally are targeting understanding and cooperating working. Still like the idea, but I, I didn't have time to do it. Right, right. A table of understanding. I have a booth at a table. Uh, and uh, so that's one aspect kind of the variety of approaches. That's fine. Eventually, I kind of have uh, been involved in a lot of groups, uh, discussion groups on racism and, uh, and immigration. And one thing I wanted to understand is we look at two different arguments about racism, different, two different and so I selected two books. One book we had nine months reading, it's called uh, Trouble I've Seen by Lee Hart, Baptist theologian. So he has this description uh, based on the race theory and coming from a Christian point of view. This solution is the policy example. And so you need to meet with the whole. You can't be one of those certain, you know, right, right. What's down in the and by that is a symbol of a broad class of people here. Mm -hmm. So we as Christians need to mix and eat with those people and share our life. Right. Right. Find out what they're going through. Right. Really, really important conclusions. And we spend a lot of time with examples built in how racism is built in. You know, along it's all systemic, right? Yes. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. I really love to put her for the Republicans. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if this would be a good time to kind of get into sort of like uh, definitions of stuff. Oh, yeah. But okay. uh, yeah, I guess where, where we've been kind of going is some of your history, background, and then uh, what, I, what I think is especially unique about you is that there's lots of people who may be involved in one or another about 
Right, you, you've been to many of them. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I, I guess what, what I'm thinking is, uh, I, want, I want to let you continue with the story, but also I'm worried of losing people in the middle, right? Or, so I was even thinking, just to backtrack five minutes ago, there's, um, words have to have shared meaning, right, to have power. Exactly. And and when you said, oh, black church, I'm like, someone's going to get mad when you said that. <laughs> no. I guarantee it. Right. Yeah, and I'm like, right. does, just, does the black church call themselves a black church or do they just call themselves a church? Right. And so I guess we need to maybe separate, uh, you know, what is said from the intent of what is said and also allow ourselves to realize that some people may define things differently <laughs> and get offended. And when you allow for the possibility that others might understand it differently, it's like, okay, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like, hey, we're not trying to upset you, but you might become upset. Right. Know? And, and I guess my encouragement is, since we're not talking to the listener, like if, if you're listening to this and some word triggers you or you get upset or something, um, send us a note, send us yeah. a message. You know? I'd like to know. Yeah, we would like to know. So, yeah, okay. And you would call this a clearing. A clearing, yeah. So, and I find those. When people have a charge with me uh -huh. face to face, I hear that. Let me know how how I attend. I find those to be therapeutic for me. Yeah, I need to know yeah. how I come across to other people, and so yeah. I invite that. You know, the, if yeah. if that term offends you, let me know, and I'll be more on that. The only people have object, objected have objected so far mm -hmm. to my describing as various factors are other white people. So I, yeah, this yes. Now this is in the conversations we have been having weekly Zoom meetings between two churches, Asbury Church, All Saints, and we look into some topics that we break break into small small groups. And those are really nice because then you get the one-on-one -on -one with a group of three or four and really get a clearer understanding. Right. Right. A lot of times we'll invite an office minister, a politician, a chief, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I want to take a minute here um, to explain, like, we have a problem in our world today with people getting offended on behalf of others, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a huge issue because I can't know. The best way for me to know your experience is to ask you directly and allow you to speak for yourself. And when I get offended on your behalf, that's not empathy, that's not sympathy, because I'm removing your agency, right? Speaking for you. And a lot of the, the people I know that get offended most, I'd like to use another one of these loaded terms, is privilege, right? And mm -hmm. um, that's now what I would call weaponized. Mm -hmm. And one of the things in the, in the privilege sphere is this concept of lending privilege. Right, it's like, hey, if I have a microphone and it's my turn to speak, you know, and they'll do this in Congress, they'll say, I yield my time, and then they'll pass the mic, right? So rather than getting offended on behalf of someone else or telling someone else that they're a victim, right? It's not up to you to decide whether or not someone else is a victim, right? Um, just speak to yourself, touch yourself, use I statements, and meet folks within, right? Um, yeah, I think, I think I'll, I'll yeah. leave that for now, but... Um, so you want to ask something? Yeah. So um, on this Zoom meeting, this race conversation, mm -hmm. Zoom meeting between uh, a lot of people outside of this have been joining too. Uh, 
But some, sometimes we'll have in the small group a meditation to describe your life. And among the new white members, which time they generally have to down paths of describing their life because they, they describe their life as, oh, I've never had a problem with my whole life. I've always been that. And and then the other is those that come in who are so guilty and criticize right. themselves. Right. right. Uh, I find that I find that interesting. New people with whites to join the group are either on one side or the other. They have to explain their 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 path. Oh, it's it's original sin all over again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we have these what I would call ludicrous um you know celebrity videos that are like hi i am white and i'm sorry it's like what like use some common sense here right and um yeah yeah don't don't get me started on that it's uh that's a mess i mean that's that's a giant mess but yeah it's it's this um both abdication of responsibility and then also taking responsibility for others is again victimization Right, it's like you can't take responsibility for other people. You can't, right? You can't do that. Yeah. And um, yeah. Anywho, so you can you can realize your privileges and advantage of it. Right. And I have right. tons of those. Uh, you know, and I I can I appreciate. Now I wouldn't necessarily give uh, those advantages. Be in position of pulling up that Right. Right. My view. Yeah. That, depending on where you are, maybe it's a, another person like a friend Terry Richardson in, in the Ann Arbor congregation growing up. Uh, you know, yeah, he, he made up really well. Anyway, so okay, so I guess um, to to backtrack a little, so there's a book what I've seen, and he talks about um, what let's say systemic racism. Do we want to define that in? We define it in a number of ways. We can define it in his terms. Uh, we can define it in your terms, and then um, right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. So uh, there are two important terms. Uh, we talk about racism. There's the individual racism, where uh, I'm. I have a bias, and natural, and we all have biases. But uh, well, when, when we call someone racist you mean that it's overt uh, tension aggression towards the other way okay that's individual and the other is the perspective of society so you're sort of averaging out attitude and somehow you need to measure them good as a statistician that measure but so that so if it's a societal racism we really need a better term for instead. Uh, whatever term we come up with, it's going to be going to get opposition. We'll call it systemic racism, and that's looking at basically all the comparative advantages one group has. So the, the emphasis is on inequity, and on one side, uh, the Republicans are looking at equality of opportunity. So they don't like these that separate based on legal advantages, built in advantage. For example, any, any type of uh, reconciliation or uh, 
affirmative action. They think that's racist. No. Why would you privilege one class over another? Because when you want to see people claim, well, so that's how they look at it. And, uh, but as the, the race term looks at a sociological history and shown how the advantages have developed from slavery all the way down to Jim Crow and redlining, some crime bills and prisons, and how those are stressors for the black And that's, that's the inequity. It's, it's not fair to have these things like redlining, slums, and mistreatment by police. And if they can trace it down pretty clearly to the line of thought, historical movement, so that, okay, so we lost the slavery. But this, the whites are still in power, so we weird regulation of voting, toilets you can use. And that's just sort of a progression. So, the way things improve, but there's a lot of residual thinking that's carried on. Right. Side. Well, and so I guess there's a couple of things going on. First, um, a lot of people can't even entertain these topics. <laughs> so, I, I'm, I'm just grateful. And then, there's uh, there's uh, both agreeing on problems, right? A first step. Then there's agreeing on stuff that is much harder. And I think where I see, I would call it missteps in the discourse of the most people is lack of agreement on the problem, right? Or problems, right? And then an argument of solution when the problem's not even understood, right? You know, if you're thinking about where we're going to eat lunch and I'm thinking about where we're going to eat dinner, right? We're not even talking about the same. And I think you can you can take the topic of like racism and racism, systemic racism, but it, it comes back down to this idea we talked about before, which is use I statements, speak for yourself, and those things are so critical to make sure you're even talking about the same. Right? I think it's I think it's really tough to have what I would call a conversation, two people conversing the same thing versus just talking in each other's heads. And if you're not aware that you're not talking about the same, then you're probably just talking in the same I definitely think you need to start with uh, with definitions and focus on what the simple concepts mean. I'm big at mapping out ontological diagrams and relationships. Mm -hmm. um, and that really helps out to know what you're, you're really talking about. Like it's different concepts of race and the population level individual. That, that helps separate a lot of focus the Right. Which right. are you really talking about? Right. Uh, um, so 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 yeah so which comes first the, the issues you know you're upset about the issues so you, you see someone who you disagree with try to work this out. So then you, you start talking about why you think it's wrong and you're describing reality in some way, according to the way you see your, your citing facts and statistics and according to this model and some of the words. So all of that is it's very analytical, it's scientific as you want, or as just right. the way I was talking. Right. And uh, 
So once once you get the, the definitions down, then you start asking each other. And eventually you you ask, well, where do you want to go? What do you want to have? Right. That's the key, really, to any conversation. What do you want? Right, right. How, how do you see the world coming out in your view? Which way, which way do you prefer right. to go? Right. Which way do you think? Right. Most of the people, they'll, they'll just concentrate on talking about how they think, or how they think it's right. And they won't share their vision of where they really want to go. Oh, yeah. I joke that uh, lots of people say, trust the patriarchy, but not the patriarchy. Right. It's like, all right, we burned it down. What next? There, there was no plan B. And it's going to burn it down. <laughs> Building is hard. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So I guess to circle back a little, because uh, we, we kind of went off on a number of things. So you're studying this book. And this one guy, he has these views about systemic racism. Right. And um, so just if, if I'm understanding that, it's the observations of inequity, right? yeah. that seems a like system. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. And all the facts are his personal experience story. Yeah. Yeah. Share. Really. What I've seen. That's the title. Yeah. Yeah. The trouble I've seen. The trouble I've seen. Right. I statement, you know, big yeah. into the title, the trouble I've seen. Okay. So there's, did you want to add anything more about that book? Uh, it kind of got the general idea. Okay. This solution, by the way, was, yeah, it's, it's Christ-oriented to bring ourselves to talk to the people who are at the bottom, you mm -hmm. know, commune right. with them. Commune right. is an important word to me. Yes. That's, I, I think that the way the Quakers worship is sort of a silent commune. Yeah. Communi communication with, mm -hmm. with you and God, whatever you think of it. Uh, <laughs> So there's a you're talking about basically uh, your various background and then getting into these and eventually that led to diving into racism and you basically you studied these particular books mm -hmm. and so you mentioned the first book. What about the second book? Oh, the second book is 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 interesting. It's this came out this year called uh, Facing Reality. Two two truths that America needs. Like Charles Murray, who lives in this town, who has a Quaker community. Okay. Uh, the two truths that he wants, that, that he thinks America should know, is that there is population difference, standard deviation difference between the races on two issues one, intelligence, and the other, primary. Wow. <laughs> What, why does he want to say that this is an important thing that the nation needs to you know is that whites are more intelligent than IQ tests the Asians are there, but, you know why is that important to understand? Well, you kind of and what's the evidence? You know, there's a lot of criticism of folks do that in the book, right? Years and years of studies. And you can really go down a rabbit hole and really get historic facts, studies, and so forth. But why does he really think it's an important thing? Because he thinks they're important measures of our human potential, and that they explain a lot about how we got here. So, I mean, I, I can't speak for him, but <laughs> it sounds like he's a eugenicist. It, that's what people assume. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I could be mishearing. I, I haven't read the book. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it, it sounds like 
contrasting the two goals. As far as I can tell, he has two goals. One very okay. personal goal uh, is that he spent his lifetime analyzing Mike Pickett, and he's a member of the state. So it's a very personal thing again because he's been disinvited to lectures because he's presenting scientific data right. uh, about happens to be on race. Okay. And right. he just feels like we're closed out. There's something here that he sees as useful for man who we are. Right. Our right. potential. Uh, so that, that's one aspect. The other aspect is that, is that he, he wants, he uses the American creed. He says, this is our value. He, he leaps right into the Declaration of Independence. All men were created. So he, he looks at this idea that okay, we're a nation which is distinguished by this concept, always about the right. equality right. at the individual level. And so then he traces the uh, history of, uh, of civil rights. Okay, so we have these things introduced, but then we, we started creating these identity groups. And treating people differently, of course, and hiring and admission to school. So now we've, we've kind of forced an inequality. We're no longer equal as individuals. But if you give, you know, a 30 point IQ advantage in the application uh, to someone else or grade levels, that's not equality. So. And well, sure, that's true. Uh, what about the SF? Oh, and from then he goes on to explain how these two fundamental concepts have, have led to our predicament of racial effective segregation and slums and education and employment and so forth, that the, the, the inequities, how these two facts have led to the it goes in quite a bit of detail describing how that occurs as a natural human response to the, the world we're living in. Uh, Can I pause you for a sure. second? Yeah. So uh, I, I guess a couple of it sounds like um, there's, let's say, an agreement between both authors, hey, something is off or some bad shit happened. You got it. They agree on the reality of the inequity. There is disagreement, maybe about causality. How did this happen? Why did this happen? Yeah. Um, I don't know. We, we haven't gotten into what Murray can do about it. Okay. Well, he's against reconciliation, uh, reparations, reparations, mm -hmm. and from the back. Okay. So that's what he's against. Okay. Um, what is he for? What, what does he want? Uh, he, he wants. Freedom, uh, individual choice, mm -hmm. and an equal playing field, you know, quality. Doesn't doesn't Beller offer one that too? Or am yeah. I missing something? Uh, right. <laughs> okay. Okay. But his form of equality is getting rid of the regulations that give advantages. Okay. To the other race, right? Differently on the basis of race. And I personally think he's uh, he's off. He goes into a great deal of talk about identity groups. 
basically blames the Civil Rights Act as creating this concept. <laughs> uh, so, so he, he thinks that identity groups should not be a basis for hiring, promoting, who gets what, distribution. <laughs> and I disagree with him on that. I have a completely view. Is that that's what government does? It establishes identity groups in favor of some over the others. Now, if you're a debtor in the United States and not earning much income, that's you get treated a certain way, right? Legally, and and by the law enforcement system, yeah. right? Uh, so identity groups are kind of baked into our history, uh, from the banking system to education, employment, and laws about what you can hire and not hire, how you can hire. So. Why does he object to this type of paper when he doesn't object to all the other types of favoritism of the rich, well-educated class? What, what about that type of thing? Right. So basically, if I'm understanding right, um, Murray thinks there's too far. Or if he and the other author agree about the problems, Maybe that's right. Does Murray, what does Murray believe? Well, getting rid of the phone back, right? You know, advantages, you know, hiring, admission. So, this whole thing's kind of an epic aside of the larger frame of studying the frameworks and de escalation in books you've studied. Right. And so, I guess to step back, so, um, you know, I don't know if we maybe lost people during that, but basically, uh, one takeaway is, hey, uh, getting into the weeds takes time, right? <laughs> getting into the weeds takes time, and, and a lot of folks might not be willing to get into it, right, or might not be willing to stay with something long for a long time. Um, so is there something you'd like to do? Like, what was the result of studying? Uh, yeah, those kind of analyzing their argument, trying to follow them. In their definitions, the models of types uh, of data that they use, and their their models and approaches are completely orthogonal. In other words, they basically don't overlap. And what acts are the evidence and the observations? They right. Have different right. sets of observations. They're looking in different directions. This is the world's right. So this is one observation: is that they essentially have, have different perspectives and which seem to have certain conclusions about policy. But when you actually get down to justifying the policies, it turns out to be entirely based on value. In the one case, in the, in the two books, that the central issue is what do we do about this reality? I mean, both of them totally in agreement on how the system is, doesn't have equity. So they're both. But what do you do about that? How do you justify your policy? And that goes down to the core value. And for the, for the one side, it's empathy. We need to make some adjustments so that we're all sharing this. Right. And for the other, it's basically freedom. Mm -hmm. You know, let's put government out of these cities. And also, and also, I would add that being framed as if these are conflicting values. Yeah, which um, I think is fortunate. 
you know, right. it's yeah. not like this is important or this is important. They're both important, uh -huh. right? And then I think it's a false dichotomy, right? That they need this or this. We actually need both. Let me and, go back to definition. What do yeah. you mean by freedom? Yeah, exactly. So my freedom might limit your freedom. Right. Uh, right. So that's yeah. So uh, I guess maybe a little more on this. Thomas, do you know Thomas? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, mm -hmm. um, what? Uh, yeah, he works for, he works for, uh, I guess, Thomas. And yeah. I think yeah. um, there's, here's a nuance that I think is just straight up here, right? There's uh, equality of opportunity, then there's outcomes, right? And as far as I know, what, what Sol says and what it says is generally true is you won't have perfect distribution of outcomes, even if you do have equality. Um, but the new but there is that there's also often interference in outcome, right? And many people miss that. They think either things should be totally equal or maybe they shouldn't be equal and nothing is. And really what I think the truth is, hey, even if we had perfect equality, we would have different outcomes. And on top of that, oh, by the way, some shit has gone wrong, <laughs> right? Some stuff has gone wrong to skew outcome. And then there's the question of, well, what do we do about that, right? And that's where I think um, there's a lot of disagreement. But what do we do about it? And you could say Murray is like, uh, a common argument I hear against reparations is don't punish me for this, right? Which feels valid, which feels But then also, how do you have compassion towards some about shackled? What do you do about that? And um, I, I haven't seen a lot of good answers, <laughs> right? It's, it's, it's a tough question. Uh -huh. um, what do you do for a child whose parent got murdered, right? It's not the kid's fault. Well, suddenly they don't have a dad. They don't have a mom, right? Yeah. That's not the child's fault that they don't have a parent. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean you should take someone's parent away, right? You know, eye, eye for an eye. So I think that maybe kind of sums up that, um, that debate, if you what um you want to add something? Yeah, so there's another uh, set of issues that that I applied this analytic approach to. Uh, yeah, so and and this is what sorts of economic solutions to things like inequity and prosperity and unemployment. The answer. <clears throat> Since I was before, before we get into that, yeah. I wanted to ask. Do you call yourself an economist? You know, I'm uh, trained in mathematical statistics. I worked for the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So, so we, we Janice talk, qualified we were, to talk, talk about this. <laughs> you were qualified to talk about this. I, I regularly met with a lot of the accounts. Right. We would run right. groups, discussion groups, and put off at lunch and around. And so I was in the nuts and bolts designing the surveys survey of input right so i kind of knew how <clears throat> had kind of a model of how the economy works <clears throat> and i had that fundamental definition kind of what was the elemental concept and that <clears throat> concept is a transaction <clears throat> and everything we do has exchanges of movement <clears throat> but an economic transaction is an exchange of goods or services, money. The government system is set up so that you have to 
how is those things up and go about? <clears throat> and the fundamental law of uh, finances is that each transaction has to balance on both sides. So the net difference in assets, uh, liabilities, equity is the equation, the balance equation, has to balance on both sides of the borrower and the lender or the buyer itself. So, so <clears throat> once I mapped out, Transactions involving those two things and looked at them as bank. <clears throat> it started us understanding how money is created in different levels. And the whole concept of money, there are different types. But fundamentally, as far as our currency dollar goes, we, uh, there's only one way that you could get created, and that's how we have So ultimately, however else you create, Instruments, financial instruments, that can be treated as money, a debt, a loan, or something treated as a having worth that you can sell the debt to someone else. And in fact, that's one definition of money that we have. Well, I'm getting into the weeds here. But, uh, You're going to tie in some economic ideas. Yeah. Uh, respect and. Exactly. So uh, I, I really got carried away with one new economic that started. Formulating in 1994, multi-millionaire trader, you know, fund most became known as modern monetary theory. And and that really fascinated as a way of opening up possibilities for getting our priorities, funding all of our priorities, jobs for all, uh, healthcare for all, uh, Green New Deal totally. Everything, you know, climate change, the money is there. There's no end to the money. It's not taxation. That's a myth that taxation funds anything. Well, Corporation let's, bills. Let's, let's get into that myth because I think that's one of those points. Like, okay, it's <laughs> I know. It's a hard sell. And I've tried talking to a lot of different people, and, and, they, and they just, okay, so we can run up debt. We don't have to worry about the national debt. Well, yeah, the natural, natural, our debt, someone's debt is someone else's savings. So instead of having that five square, square clock, national debt, you can say these are national savings. Okay. These, this is money, these are assets in people's pockets. And the question is whose pockets? Yeah, exactly. Right. That, that's, that's one question. Uh, so you want to get rid of national debt, and you ask for that, and then you ask for the same people. Well, do you want to get rid of uh, of all the savings bonds? Oh, no, no. It's the same question. Virtually the same question. Uh, and the thing, thing is that I've discovered is that, is that, uh, is that economists, and I've tried listening on both sides, uh, are most of them are stuck in an equated view of how currency still unfolds mm -hmm. and then we operate like family. We need to work within our income, it's not have spending exceed our income. And they look at tax income. That is the basic myth. That means that concept needs to together. Whatever the government spends, and they, they create the money through appropriations, that's how it should be done. Is that we get together and decide what our priorities are and what we want to spend money on to accomplish our national priorities. That's called an appropriation bill. We allocate certain funds to this department, that department, that way. 
president's the Congress passes, the president signs it, sends it over to the Treasury, Treasury goes over to the central bank. Okay, put the money, this all this new money in all these government accounts, according to the corporation. Well, that's brand new money. That's how money is created, essentially, at the top level. Uh, and that's how the system should work. And, and that's what we did last year with the trillions of dollars of appropriations bill that were not tied, specifically not tied, to taxation. It's a clauses in there that no pay go. You know, pay go means that I have to stretch my head. I want to spend on this. I have to either spend less on something else or tax more. So I need, need to find the money. I need to pay to go. No. Uh, that's complete, complete myth. And what we did, it kept the world operating without a financial crisis as much as it could have been uh, by the federal government making that decision to or the federal government, Congress, going to spend this money for this operation. The federal government just all these accounts expended into the private sector. And that's key. That's how it always works. Government spending goes into the private sector. That's income to the private sector. So if you want to balance the taxation budget, so you're decreasing your spending, you're starving the private sector. And so once we got out of the gold standard in 1971, under Nixon, these things gradually became clear. We can never, the government can never run out of money. We can only close down because we say we have to close, because we have some sort of law that we passed about ceiling on spending. This is a decision that constraint Congress placed on themselves. Uh, so I, I, I'm explaining a particular view, which uh, a lot of people can understand. And but once you, you point out that so what can go wrong with this money? Well, a lot of things can go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to start asking you about that. Uh, you can create inflation easily. Right. Yep. Okay. But how do you create inflation? You basically, uh, you're spending more on creating demand of resources that exceed the supply, makes the prices go up. And if you do that in a, a number of sectors, then this whole price level goes up. Uh, so what, what kind of we kind of realize is that we're no longer under the gold standard, like we were on every one of the wars, the big wars that we've won, the Civil War, World War I, World War, all of those, we eliminated the gold standard. We focused all of our energies, expenditures, created enough money, went into quote, quote, debt, borrowing, to fund the wars that we needed to win. That was a national we enacted uh, policies which would curtail citizens' consumption and then encouraging the saves of metals and bacon fat and so forth. Uh, so that's what the government can do when it sets its goals on winning a war. They can create as much money as they want, focus their attention, spend it on the resource they need to win the war, and try to as much as possible to press the private sector spending so, so that the resources are freed up for the war. We can do the same thing now with our priorities. 
and particularly uh, jobs for all, I think, would basically solve most of the crime. And people want to understand how that all works. Basically, jobs for all is government finances and passes along to local communities. The local communities decide we need to do these things in our community, so we need to create these positions to handle these priorities of the community. They say, government, give me some of this new money, and I'll hire these people. Might might be trivial stuff like building the walls or something, uh, but it keeps people employed so if they're not on the on the refuse pile. The longer they're the more work and that to me would basically solve a lot of the things like crime inequalities and equity. If everyone had an income, a little bit of income. And by the government setting the wage, that would be the minimum wage for the nation. So that would equalize the region, the economies of the region. And once you get this view, you can see how much power the government already has always had in setting prices. And I won't go into that. But, uh, so, so this is really fascinating. This has been consuming me, but last night, I listened to uh, a debate by BBC. It was a live debate. I had the moderator about was an hour and a half. The subject was Keynes versus Hyde. Two different views of the economy, two different approaches to solving boom-bust cycle. Uh, and they had some really good answers that really made good, good arguments for case. And uh, so on the basis of that, I'm going to use, I, I gained a lot of insight into the Hayek model, which basically couldn't figure out what their evidence was or their statements. You know, like money, government spending crowds out private money. Government debt crowds out private debt. This idea, how do you, you know, and I've read about velocity of money and so theories and it just doesn't make any sense to me. <clears throat> but I did get an insight about where they're coming from, the fundamental core value of the Keynesians versus And again, it boils down to the Hayekians believe in the free market. You know, you get government in there and they'll create bubbles. Right. Okay, right. Versus the Keynesians say the government has a power to Right. Uh, so I, I'm fascinating what my next project is kind of compare these models a little bit more thoroughly and compare the core values. Yeah, because I would say they're both wrong. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. And, and there is this third value because even the Keynesians were hanging on to the debt net, the deficit net. Uh, well, so where I think that has some is as far as I understand we got currency in here. Right? No, not because of the because of printing money. The, the hyperinflation comes in because you have you have demand exceeding supply. Zimbabwe, the, the food that the, when they redistributed the land, the farms went to they didn't have food. Right. Food prices went up. So what was their response? They put more money. The inflation followed the demand, the price is going up. 
prices started going up. Right. I'm, I'm they started printing the money. I'm, I'm with you there. I think the, the counter argument is that if the currency is not fiat, the ability to print is exactly. Yeah, so the states have to buy by a limited budget. Right. Interesting, all of the European nations now have to, where, but, and they haven't yet realized, they're beginning to realize the, the power of the central bank of Europe and how they can use that for fiscal power, spending more appropriately at the European level. So I guess if I'm understanding right, uh, uh, one of your so world views, the power of using the policy. Yeah. Yeah. And then I guess kind of, it almost circles back to, let's say there's like two books we talked about. Then there's a show or debate you watched last week. And again, these, and they may not agree on the problems. They definitely don't agree on the solutions, right? And- mm -hmm. um, Completely different solutions. Yeah, yeah. One, one's you starve the economy to get out of the depression. And the others, you pump more money into the Right, yeah. right, yeah. And I guess what's interesting there is, um, I mean, I have so many. Did uh, did you want to tie that in a little more to um, using of uh, economics or economic policy um, in quality? Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, a, lot of, a lot of the solutions I think have an economic fiscal policy, like the jobs for all, really big on that program and how it works, right. how it could work. Mm -hmm. I, I've heard criticisms of how it could go wrong. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and basically the criticisms are based on the capability of a local community to, to come together and form a definition of the jobs, the program jobs at the local level. You know, right. What, Create the jobs, right. define the jobs. Right. Uh, and that some communities, the welfare communities, would really, really get changed for them. But slum? No, no, right. It's going to take some thought for uh, certain communities to, to face the fact that they can get free labor paid for by the government really helps everyone. Yeah. Well, I guess. Um... Where I'm, I'm kind of maybe thinking. Oh, but, but this, I just, yeah. so I've, I'm always torn with this. That, uh, so I have a solution in my own mind that works. Yeah. <laughs> I'm interviewing you. <laughs> and my primary mission uh, is to create skills for understanding each other. Right. But right. if I go touting my solutions, that's going to turn off a lot of people. You know, so, I, somehow I, I'm balancing these two priority missions. You know, kind of how far do I pursue this new economic theory, create policy, uh, or how much do I really emphasize the technical communication? You know, it's kind of a personal say, decision. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I would say I would say that the answer is both, and uh, creativity in minus and how it works best is an idea I have a different. Yeah. That right. is the result of this. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, I guess um, I'll, also, I'll share some of mine, <laughs> right? And then and, and steel man it, straw man it, whatever. So I, I guess um, the Hayekians, as, as far as I understand, um, are, are kind of one. I don't know what Thomas Sowell said, you know, he said it under where where his view 
carries water is or holds water is basically uh it requires immense hubris to know what is best yeah right right and uh uh-huh. yep <laughs> that checks out you know and then also where but, i think yeah, that's good i uh, like that statement that's uh, a healthy statement that yeah focuses on the government thinks it knows best right that's their objective. right so and it, and, it, and it kind of gives you the impression that they're going to muck things up and solidify yeah the economy. they're going to make it uh just freeze up yeah there's there's that and then where let's say and and i don't i can't speak for Congo, but uh a lot of people say free market rah 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 and um I would say markets are inherently flawed, right? Inherently, mm-hmm. as far as I know, Aristotle and Socrates hated markets, right? And, uh, you know, this will probably piss off a lot of people, but uh, I'm not saying I have a solution better than a market, right? But what happens when a market gets, uh, specialization gets, you know, basically, hey, turns out I'm better at making pens than you are at making paper. So I'll make pens and paper, and then there's this whole concept. This is weird. I'm kind of nervous. Part of me, like, has thought the concept of right because and and that's like I don't I don't know what's something better, but uh, what what is the concept? So how do you how do you look at that? So as and I might be boxing economics, but my understanding is that consumer surplus is the gap or the delta between what I'm willing to pay for something and uh, you could say the the cost of production, right, or what some people profit. And um, like where, where I always had a bug of me, um, this is really early in my career, with sales was we had this case, do what's in the best thing of the customer and do what's in the best thing. It's really early. In and we were uh, fucking loving <laughs> And um, I honestly, what was in the best thing of both was not what my company which was. I think it's in the best interest of our customer to not work with us, right? And I also think that's in the interest of the company. If I say, hey, Jim, you know what? Right now, I'm really not on my game, mm-hmm. right? You probably can cross the goal over there instead. That builds trust. Mm-hmm. Later, uh-huh. when I am on my game, you will come see me and trust me, yeah. right? And, and the company didn't agree. How does that related tie to surplus? Um, you could say it's like cost-based pricing and value-based pricing, right? Which is Hey, there's a value provided is really esoteric and hard to know. Hey, here's how much it costs me to do this. And and there's credence to both. But um, and and I guess I'm I'm rambling the point. But basically, when you have a market, uh, markets create asymmetry, right? And then the question becomes how do, how do they what kind of asymmetry, what dimensions do you have? Uh, asymmetries of information. Right? Oh, of okay. information. Okay. Yeah, like uh, how much something costs on the shelf. Is probably different from how much it costs to make. So, right? where's the symmetry between what the public knows and what the manufacturer? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then that can happen in like, yeah. But, but basically, uh, I, I think that's an important thing to me because I would say traditional economics shits the bed. Is it that we're operating with perfect? Nope. The moment a market is born, information is not perfect at all. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you, your model is trash immediately. <laughs> and um, where markets break down is where in many cases historically we had government intervention where free market this is what's funny and i'm really random oh, okay. up. Yeah. 
most people who are pro free market, as, as far as I want to, I don't want to bastardize, often have this free market, rah, 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 and, and they drop violated. Mm -hmm. That was government intervention in a free market. What about mm -hmm. the Sherman Antitrust Act? That was government intervention in a free market. Were those bad things? Mm -hmm. Well, maybe not. Okay, then the question becomes not should we intervene or not, but how should we intervene? When should we? And those are questions with really, really, really hard answers. Right? I don't that's where that's where the discourse comes in, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, hey, we can agree that there are snafus, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, what do we do next? <laughs> right. And then and then you have the Keynesians and the Hayekians. And uh I think uh I mean I I'd love to hear more of, of your personal suit, right? Because you could say the, the one school of thought is you know, let sleeping dogs lie. The school of thought is like, hey, people are suffering, you need to help them. And then the question becomes, and maybe the high community, can we, we help people best by the mm -hmm. right? And that's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Anywho, that was a lot. Sure. But uh, yeah, what I'd love mm -hmm. to hear your kind of like addition. Yeah. Wow. Well, which direction? Um, oh, geez. that's a really great ideas. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, uh, markets. Uh, yeah, but I don't know why. Sorry, I'm kind of now. I'm, now I'm <laughs> okay. Do you want to? Do you want to pause for a minute? Sure. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pause this real quick. We'll we'll shake things out. Alrighty. All right, folks. We just got back from a bio break. So before we dive deeper. Uh, into you know, Jim's personal thoughts and, and theories and conclusions based on all this literally many decades of study is that this medium is limited, right? This is two people having a recorded conversation and we acknowledge the limitations of the medium. So consider this an invite. If you agree with us, if you disagree with us, if you're curious, if you want to tell us that we're stupid, tell us. Um, as always, I'm available on Twitter. That link will be in the show notes or my handle is just at stegdrew. You can email me. Um, we'll put some contact information for Jim as well. And again, the kind of meta theme of, of the entire podcast and then this show in particular is reducing the civility deficit, right? So as we segue into this next phase, which would be an, an illustration of, of a viewpoint, not the viewpoint, there are many points that exist. Just make note that, hey, you're welcome here. You as a listener, you can engage too. Um, I'm probably gonna make some sort of community around this podcast. I don't know how that's gonna manifest, but that will that will better allow folks from the audience to engage in these sorts of moments and discussions. So I guess without further ado, um, you know, feel free to take a crack at the Five, five, I just lobbed at you in terms of all that economic stuff. Yeah, so I, I have my own personal uh, viewpoints and solutions and approaches to different social problems. And, so and uh, uh, but my primary mission is to is around communication to be to understand uh, on hot issues and how to how to so besides all of the good stuff. Greater Angels and a lot of the other hundreds of organizations in the state. I've concentrated on this method of debate. How do we debate? Uh, and so I've kind of come up for a platform for 
discussing that includes all aspects of the mystery, the theoretical, the factual, and the description reality. And then the second, what, what are the issues? What, what is wrong with that picture like this? And then, well, how are you going to do it? Policy is the third point. Uh, but then, how do you justify the policy? What is your, your core values? Say, I'm going to go in this direction, that way. And that's, I find, the most interesting. Is that you can have all of the stuff that was received and all of the human and the statement of the issues, policy statement. But fundamentally, it boils down to who you are as a person, what you got core value as to which policy, the facts, and so forth. Uh, sort of whatever might have been whatever you choose to use to connect the dots for you. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, so in terms of the economics, you know, I've been focused and really fascinated by MNT, the modern market theory, and all the potential that it has for it. Basically, everything we want is that we need to avoid one test inflation. Okay, but last night I listened to this debate in BBC between these two sets of economists, Keynesian and, and Hayek. Finally, got the core values. I'm now to go in each theory from that perspective, recognizing that's the core value of the yeah. And so now, what then are the definition facts or how they connect? What's narrative that they say? And then I think we all agree in what's basically is equity. That sort of thing. It seems to be this central issue in a lot of different topics. Who wins and who loses? Right. One, one reason I like NFT is because approach to naturally spread out the force setting the right fiscal policy. But I, I really think I need to examine each of those two models that were on the stage, both of which I disagree with to some extent, but to, to, to really flesh that out for myself. So that, so that I can understand. So what would, what would you say? Uh, yeah, I uh, basically emphasizes market freedom. Freedom to me is a really low time. I thought I wrote a book on this. Uh, behind freedom. And, and, uh, and then, of course, it's that the government has its, within it, problems not solved. Now, the fact that this doesn't necessarily make this a socialist country, it just means that we're making central decisions about spending our money into the private sector. We're not controlling production necessarily. Uh, so I wasn't quite hearing that as like a value. Okay, yeah. The, the value is, is, is one more of, <clears throat> of order, of order, yeah, stability. Stability, yeah. We want stable economy, which is, more equal, uh, and we can make choices at the national We're not limited by currency. Uh, we can get into a lot of problems if we, we create too much demand in certain sectors with the private sector and driving up prices. Inflation is the big thing. Before, the Vikings tend to, orthodox economists, the solution is we need a certain level of unemployment. How's that a solution? Right, you need right. to have millions of people unemployed in order to have a stable economy, you know, control inflation. 
That's not good choice for me. But still, I need to basically understand the hidden concept behind what theory that I, I I'm open to criticism and so forth like that. So what would be your what would be your question? MT in your part of that or the plus in spin or <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty much fine to be with caveat that, that we're, we're opening up powerful tool that could be abused. Creating so, the, okay. the atom bomb. Yeah, yeah. I mean uh nuclear power. Uh, I've been thinking about this for a while and I was like, <laughs> I don't know where we're gonna go here, but we're we're gonna go. Uh, so yeah. what are your thoughts on like, digital assets or oh, okay. getting into that world? Yeah, uh, a little bit I, I was uh, on federal committee on uh, infrastructure. And so I know a little bit about mathematics. Not, not a whole lot. I don't know the detail of the algorithm, but functionally, the cryptocurrency is not a currency. And it depends on your definition of currency. It's not, it's it's more like a stock. Well, and there's, so I, I guess before like we dive in, um, there's many different cryptocurrencies or digital assets. Um, so exactly. the main, the main point I was really trying to put it all was directly related, which was bomb or et cetera. And um, we have in our current a lot of counterparty risk. And the coolest about crypto is reduction or eliminating counterparty risk, right? What is that? Uh, counterparty risk basically, we've got to trust that the government will do it in our best interest, right? And that's a risk, right? Because maybe they don't act in our best, become co opted. Um, Will they print money responsibly? And especially for the folks who are shafted by their own government, often the answer is right. And then other people, well, hey, they do, and they, and, and I think I can both agree. So I guess where where crypto comes in, or how I was trying to relate it to your point, was with, let's say, MMT, right? There is risk, right? Irresponsible in terms of crypto as a practical application. Irresponsible. Uh, you could say the government, right? Mm -hmm. Our, our what they got to do with How are they irresponsible? Now, with, with cryptocurrency, uh, they're, they're, they're not involved. <laughs> so, yeah. basically, um, as far as I understand, a big boom of this technology is that rather than trusting, putting your trust in an entity, third party entity, you don't have to. Right, that that risk. Uh, you're you're trusting the, the the chain with recording. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Um, so you're you're still trusting some. Uh, let's, let's step back and, and look at how caught on mm -hmm. as a, a currency. Uh, the first really runaway application, as I in my recollection, is with simple dark web. Yeah, that that was one of them. And so it was with that, hey, this is a way of keeping the government out of my decision of what to buy. And I can mm -hmm. conduct business. Not a minute. And so the, the advantage for crypto originally, anonymity, that was its sales. And so he started getting a lot of underground crypto value of the currency, which is limited, but one million coins. Started going, value started going up. 
And people started looking at that. So I want to invest in that. Basically, I gamble my money thinking that's going to increase. So it became then from a tool of anonymity to basically a financial instrument that I'm willing to, to buy, to invest in. That's what it is. It's a financial instrument. Like, like a stock or a bond or anything else, it, it has a value that you can sell to someone else in the market, which gives you a stake in the product or company or something. Uh, but what, it, what is your stake to cryptocurrency? Why do you just have a share whose value is changing going up and down into a thing called a Bitcoin, which has no intrinsic value? So in that regard, it's sort of, sort of like a dollar. The dollar has been really right since so, so, so 1971. Yeah. So that's what cryptocurrency is. It's like stock that you purchase, but it, it fails the, the the definition of a money in in several respects. One, it's not easy to exchange. Yeah, I, I don't exchange. Right. I have looked into the process. I've talked a lot yesterday. I, I don't understand. It doesn't seem like it's very fun to, to me. Primary. Second problem is that it's not stable. So there's a lot of risk involved in, that, in investing. Right, right. And that's the risk that you need to be concerned about. That's your what? That's your investment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think that's a good point because uh, all of that's true. I think we're at a phase now where I would say cryptocurrency what I would call a fundamental, but they're not mature, right? Right. So this. What are you organizing? Uh, so basically, <laughs> as um, I mean, I've heard some just. Yeah. So again, the, the main point is the removal of the trusted third party, right? But where that gets into nuance. And, you're trusting. <laughs> well, so so there's a lot of trust in the Bitcoin. Well, where where there's you, you don't know anything as an investor about that process. Well, sort of. So that exists on multiple ways, right? What are unknowns is you know at what point will it stabilize, right? That's an un and then also what's an un how will the technology mature in terms of uh, changeable, right? But those are changeable, right? Those are in flux, right? And um, so it could become more fungible, exchangeable if you get a, a system where you can buy and sell more freely. Yes. Uh, yeah. And then um, the other piece is basically um, where I would call it a fundamental thing now. But um, as far as I understand, some taxes created in the early constitution. Um, and, right. That's a whole nother debate. But some people, some people have that belief, right? And so there's strong incentives basically opt out of that. Hey, I don't like being a wage slave for 35% of your four out of the 12 months of the year, right? And a lot of people don't frame it that way, but how the math checks out, 35% of the feds labor and a lot of people. Right? Now you're talking about taxes. <laughs> Not right. Taxes, the bottom line is, is Taxes have different purposes, and the primary purpose is mm -hmm. to establish the value of the currency. You know, the only place they can pay their taxes is by dollar, not mm -hmm. Bitcoin, right, or not any, right. not, not yen or 
any yeah. other yeah. currency. So it establishes the value of the dollar. Mm -hmm. Pay your tax. That's where the, the counterparty rests on the back end. The taxes are levied against third party. And the power rests party. So a lot of people. Well, it's coercive, yeah, because you got to pay it. Yeah. But if you take a close look at what we use taxes for, or try to use taxes for, like equalize playing field income, uh, it, it doesn't work. And in fact, there are other ways of equalizing the wealth. Without taxes, people don't realize it's basically, but there are examples. The government could put a cap on income. Now, that seems radical, doesn't it? It says you can't earn more of a million dollars. Anything more, uh, it goes, to the, it goes off. Right. You get the story. Right. Right. <laughs> but you want to equalize the playing field. Well, who's worth a billion dollars? Who's worth 80 billion, 100 billion? Uh, I mean, they have a lot of freedom, and they can use that freedom to squash my freedom like an ant. Right. It doesn't make me feel particularly safe. <laughs> right. If I right. disagree with some billionaire and have a point out and have some inside information that's guilty, am I going to expose that powerful giant? Wow. Yeah. There's one. That's a real threat. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Well, so I guess um, I'm, I'm curious, uh, basically, what are your thoughts or beliefs or maybe even values? I hadn't heard, but I think I have a belief that the government generally uh, works in the best interest of the system of checks and balance. Do you believe that? Or? Uh, uh, do, I, do, I, do I trust the government? <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess, yeah. Right. Uh, I, I have I tend to have a lot of trust in the government and, uh -huh. and kind of a belief that uh, <laughs> that once we've learned the lessons of 2008 and 2020, things we've gone through, we've learned the lessons of rates and so forth, and taxes. What once we clear out the mythology about the economy, I think that will basically reset our thinking so that we're doing we're all together and doing right. But that's a that's my vision. That's where I want to go. You know, that's that's I how say, I, I say that's, that's how I see things working. I would say that's kind of Weinsteinian. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean well, uh, you, you've read Eric or? I mean I haven't read a bunch but yeah I would say I'm familiar with his work yeah. and uh <laughs> I would say his his view is like we restore the institutions, whereas some people have a view of like burn them down. <laughs> um, you know, he's like renovate. Then what? <laughs> yeah, then then what exactly? And um, I think building is hard. Building is hard, mm -hmm. and a lot of folks are at this stage of I don't think this is, and, and that's that's where they are, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like okay, yes, what next? Yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> what do you mean? What's next? <laughs> right? It's like, well, if we've established that this is working, what are we? and that's where I see much less risk. And I think um, I see from Eric, from you, uh, there are there's plenty of people. And you have Marxists like Richard Wolf. Are you familiar with? Um, but that's uh, that's the land that I like to work. Is like I think where unity comes is 
so many people realize what we're doing is not, we're not as optimized, effective as, and then the question is, what next, right? And so you have a uh, school of thought, and I guess maybe what, what you, well, here's your take on an option on the menu.
do you trust the government is not as simple as a yes or no you get into and then a lot of different people when you're like getting into the discussion um i think you know whether someone is acting in good faith uh elephant in the, right yeah uh so i i really like uh poverty's quote and is one question you need to focus on i have my one his one question is why does this matter what does this issue matter what does it matter to you <laughs> i guess in the heart of it yeah. yeah and keep asking that yeah. and then you do sort of a uh back and forth repeating that i heard you say this right. is this accurate you know, what do you call it mirroring yeah it's mirroring validating mm -hmm. um so that's that's one way to go and what i like to ask is what do you have what's your vision for the future now that really points in the right right and, okay if i really understand that what can go wrong and we have which i eventually need to open up to yeah even in my preferred vision things can go wrong right you know, so I need to be open to that. Right. It's like something like the black swan approach by Nissan Pella. It's unforeseen consequences that you can't build into your model, right. your statistical model. Right. And uh, your understanding. Yeah. So, what do you do if, right? Or, well, it depends on what, how they're. Explain good faith and what they're hiding something. Yeah, yeah, it could be this thing. You know, someone says, oh, I want this, and it's like this more. Yeah. Right. And then, um, uh, well, you need to be able to feel free to ask questions there. Well, sounds like you're, you're saying this. You're, you're really, it sounds like you're really saying. If you don't call them a liar or right, right. Of cards. but you say, if I hear you right, I hear you say this, and it doesn't fit with what I see saying, uh, feel free to ask questions to each other. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I guess uh, that's a great That's one of the tests, one of the quickest shit to figure out someone's acting in good faith and not good. No questions. <laughs> Why can't they ask questions? Because they're hiding something. Yeah. Right? It also might be because of how you ask the question. That's you know, true. It's, it's a loaded question. Yeah, there's several so questions. That comes into the skills. How do you how yeah. do you uh, uh, avoid offending someone or accusing the come out of this way? Yeah. Uh, and you know, and let and let your curiosity right genuinely so I guess um I'm kind of sensing we're we're winding down here and I'll definitely put a lot of stuff but um you mentioned these various organizations I'll try to put as many um the bridge alliance is a good start and is there be them but is there a place where like you have the mind there's tons of people that are going to hear where would you like them to go or do that <laughs> uh oh wow um uh, I'd say take a look at Labor Angels uh, right. and learn those skills, a good starting point. And then 
uh, take advantage of some of these other organizations like Listen First and uh, I can't remember some of the other some of the organizations that give you an opportunity to actually engage. A lot of these hundreds of organizations offer those types of and and enforce the rules of conversation like that. Basically, enforce yeah, civility. Civility, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like those kind of groups. Like uh, I've been involved in uh, in Frederick County the uh, interfaith dinners that it's called, called the amazing amazing faith dinners, and basically all the faith communities and non faith communities together and mix them up and then assign them homes to have dinners in eight to eight in a group, and then you basically have a deck of cards with that. And the questions are about your spiritual, emotional beliefs. It's really pointing life and death. Right. And so you get to see up close an arrangement where you, you have people with different, and you're talking about each one is answering questions on their own. So that type of thing is really great. Let's see more of that. We have a Organization here, the Society of Supper Club. It's been a started there. And meeting together with people of different And uh, the guy that leads that is Mike Corrigan, and he has a really crazy lot of rocks and sort okay. of truth, where it's a saber swords of light. And then he has the, uh, the golden ball of truth, that's throw it down and it blows. Okay. Right against the wall. Right. So these are way of opening the ceremony. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and he also likes alliteration. Yeah. He introduces kind of someone. Yes. Really drives you crazy. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. So he has a style that's uh, it works. Yeah. Well, right on. Um. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And um. And um. The show. I've been trying for a while to come unique selling proposition, right? And a unique value proposition. And I think you kind of encapsulate what I'm about, right? Uh -huh. So many different varieties, right? It's like, okay, you grew up and your dad's PhD advisor was hyper intellectual, something like the goat of psychology, <laughs> right? And your parents have these two different religions. So you become, you know, the diplomat as a, at birth, uh -huh. right? <laughs> And then, um, you know, you had a career, I would say career as a public servant, right? Working for the government. Right. No. Of course, I worked for General Motors for three years as uh -huh. a project engineer. Yeah. And then Safety. have spent a ton, as much as anyone, a ton of time trying to understand other people and build and create, right? Mm -hmm. And then also, I would say, following your own curiosity. Means of mm -hmm. doing that. And, um, it's been a blessing and a blessing. I just like to say that life is an adventure. Learning how to talk and listen to the way they see it is an adventure. And yeah. once you understand someone else, that clears up who you are. Yes. So it's a value for both. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm going to power this thing off here. Okay. Are you tired of your toes getting cramped? and your feet hurting from wearing dress shoes all the time? Maybe you're into the barefoot shoe movement and you love the feeling of your barefoot shoes, 
but you have to wear dress shoes sometimes. If you're in either of these cases, or you're just curious what this whole barefoot shoe thing is like, but you don't want some Vibram Five Finger clown shoes, as I've worn in the past, then you need Carrots. C-A-R-E-T-S dot com. Carrots makes the best looking minimalist dress shoe, and they're founded by Mountain Chang, former podcast guest. Plenty of people have healed health problems from wearing these shoes. They are not a medical device, but what I said is true. If you're wearing a really cramped small toe box with a raised heel, it can hurt your feet. It can cause all sorts of problems with your body. And if you're in those situations where you still need a dress shoe, but you want something that's more comfortable for your foot, it's hard to find options. I've worn dress shoes, excuse me, barefoot shoes for eight years. And Carrots, again, that's C-A-R-E-T-S dot com, is the only ones that I've found who make good looking dress shoes. Check them out. C-A-R-E-T-S dot com. I hope you all enjoyed that. One quick thing in closing, stegdrew.com slash juicy. Stegdrew, just like the show, dot com slash juicy. You can sign up for my weekly musings there on all things like we spoke about in this episode and other assorted weirdness. Just drop in your email, stegdrew.com slash juicy. Thank you.